We're so thankful for prayer. Just uh, it's a privilege to be together. It just it was just joy just filled my heart as we sang together. It's been too long that we got to do that, and it was just a wonderful experience. So we ask you to bless and bless our time in the Word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. All right. So I think our job is to look at the Word of God. So let's uh, find your Bible, and you can open it to uh, Daniel, actually. We're in Philippians, but we're going to go to Philippians by way of Daniel, which is the obvious thing you do in these situations. So Daniel chapter 6, in particular, I want you to go to. So Daniel's right after Ezekiel, if you're having trouble finding anything. So Daniel 6 is addressing how Daniel faced a moment of great peril. He's an older man by this point. He was so wise and so accomplished in his service to the kingdom of Babylon that when they were suddenly overthrown by violent conquest, he was offered a position, a very high position in the the new regime. So the new ruler, Darius the Mede, who was placed over um, Babylon by the Medo-Persian alliance, they had, there were higher men than him, but he was given the Babylonian territory after the conquest. And in Daniel chapter 6, verse 2, having served his life in the government of Babylon, Daniel is appointed as one of three commissioners under Darius to oversee 120 other officials who have the delightful name Satraps. I, don't, I think I wouldn't take that job just because of the name. It just sounds, I'm Satrap Wilson. That just doesn't sound good. But um, that's what they were called in those days. But even among the three, over the 120, Daniel was one of the three. He's distinguishing himself. And Darius plans to elevate him above the two other commissioners. He's so outstanding in his uh, work ethic and in his wisdom that he's going to, Darius wants to raise him up above the other two. What happens in governments when you have uh, cabinet people and one of them starts getting the favor of the president or the king or the prime minister? The other ones all hate them. That's how it usually works. That's how the world works. And that's exactly what happened in this particular situation. So it says in verse 4, Then the commissioners and satraps began to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. That ain't going to work. They could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. So you know the story. Daniel routinely prayed three times a day at an open window facing Jerusalem, praying for his homeland and his people and whatever else he was concerned about. So these less worthy men persuade the king to pass a ridiculous ego-stroking law requiring that for 30 days, for a month, people could only pray to the king, to Darius, the ruler. And they were not allowed to pray to their own gods for 30 days. Now, if you're a pagan you would go, okay. 
unless you maybe were concerned about one God bringing favor on your family for you know, a healthy childbirth or your crops or whatever, but they're gonna, it's nothing to them to just fall in line. The only way to nail Daniel was because he was a man of integrity and he could only be brought down with a charge of faithfulness against, against him for his faithfulness to God. And the plan works and the king signs this law and Daniel is made aware of it. And immediately, he springs into action. He gets on a ship, headed for, no, he doesn't do that. Let's see, that's, that's not my Bible. Let's see, then we gotta check this again here. Oh, he comes up with a scheme to get around this by pretending he's sick, and he crawls into bed for days where no one will see him. No, that's not it either, and it's not, that's not what it says. He gets depressed, so depressed by this law, which is gonna probably lead to his death, that he, um, goes into his room and he just stops eating and he contemplates ending his own life. No, that didn't happen either. That's not what happened. He deconverts. No, that didn't happen either. You know what he does? He does what he did every day. He goes to the window and he prays three times a day, but for the 30 days he closes the shutters so nobody can see him praying. No, that's not it either? I better read this actually. No, what does he do? No, it's, uh, it's in verse 10, what he actually does. I remembered it wrong. Thank you for correcting me. It says, now when Daniel knew the document was signed, he entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had a window open toward Jerusalem and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. So he prays just as he always had done come what may. Two things are governing his mind and heart. One is his belief that God is to be honored above all things. And the other one is that God is sovereign in all circumstances. So he will maintain an open expression of his faithfulness to God in the circumstances that God has ordained, even though very likely those circumstances will lead to his death. So he will pray with the window open. That's godliness. You're looking at godliness here. What Daniel is doing here is exactly what Paul discusses in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. So we can start heading in that direction now to Philippians chapter 4. Now many hundreds of years separate Daniel and Paul. They lived in different worlds, very different cultures. Babylon was nothing like Rome. But godliness looks exactly the same in those very diverse time periods, diverse locations, and diverse cultures. That looks exactly the same. In fact, godliness is the same in all cultures, in all times, in all places. It doesn't change. So Paul is calling on the Philippians really to become Daniels, although he doesn't mention his name. To be, and, and, and what I mean by that is just to simply become secure and unshakable in the Lord. And the last time I was with you, a couple weeks ago, we talked about rejoicing in the Lord, verse 4, and then this idea in verse 5 of letting other people experience your big-heartedness. We said that God's love for us is a spring from which joy flows. We are to be joyful people, and that joy should embrace all around us by us being gentle and forgiving and forbearing and 
big-hearted. And we said that, that the spring from which joy flows is, is having this personal relationship, this walk with God. I know the living God. I know that he loves me. And that brings joy to my heart and that joy overflows to other people. So that's really important, what we talked about last time. But there's more. Paul has more. And we'll look at some more today and we'll look at more even more next week. But here's the next part of it. There's more to be said. So remember chapter 4 began with an effort to heal this broken relationship in the church at Philippi. The church's joy was diminished or even stolen by these two irreconcilable sisters in the Lord who were not getting along and it was affecting the whole congregation. And Paul says it's imperative that they be reconciled. Because a church loses its vitality, it loses its life when there's no joy. And joy is to be the, the heart of what the Christian life is all about. So the cure for what ails them is, Paul calls it, joy in the Lord. Now joy is not just pretending, you know, it's being happy, putting a smile on. Uh, but we talked last time about a deep, settled walk with God is where joy comes from. Because that sets you free from being overwhelmed by circumstances. So joy is always available in the relationship we have with God and that can overflow in any circumstance. Isn't that exactly what Daniel was cultivating in his own heart all his life long? This walk with God that did not shake him from confidence in God's goodness and God's sovereignty no matter what was happening, even when his life was in jeopardy. So, okay, we've said that joy feeds love which works towards unity and healing rifts. The one thing we didn't really cover, but which Paul explores now in a really profound way here, and Daniel exemplifies in his life, is this place of prayer, the great benefits of prayer. Prayer actually shapes us, it shapes who we are. So when we talk about Christian virtues and living the Christian life, they are not the product of our own personal discipline. Now, we are to live disciplined lives, but that's not where that comes from, um, unless, unless we're talking about your discipline of walking with the Lord. I mean, that's, really, that's the source of it. These aren't things you can just will to exist in you, you know. I decided I'm going to be this. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to be positive. I'm going to be humble. Now, strong-minded people can will themselves or discipline themselves to grow some of these good things. They can express these sorts of things in their life. They can try to be honest and all that. The pagan philosophers believed in that and they tried to do that. Socrates would be a good example of that. But we're not talking about just good habits or ways to bear yourself in an honorable way. We're talking about spiritual virtues. Spiritual virtues are rooted in our walk with God, our relationship with God. It's different, it's deeper, it's more substantive, it's got something rooted there. And it can only be produced through this living relationship with Him. It's just not being another nice guy. So here are the keys to being truly joyful in the Lord and maintaining this big heartedness Paul talks about that is spiritually grounded in Christ. So the two important words here are everything and nothing. Everything and nothing. Now when the apostles, when an apostle of Jesus Christ talks about nothing and everything, we should listen. 
Because when an apostle of Jesus tells you about nothing that should be there and everything that should be there, that's probably important. It's probably important to not have the one thing there, and it's probably really important to have the everything there, right? So that's where we are. So nothing, is, is what is that? That's a complete nullification, right? A, a total rejection, a giant no. Everything is central. It's the first priority. It's top of the list. It's not to be missed. It's do it. So here we go. Start with, we'll start with nothing. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Some of us actually live by anxiety. I mean, that's our normal state of existence. All of us experience anxiety at some time or another. Different times, different circumstances. It's kind of wired into us to be anxious. We don't ask for it, it just shows up. We're just anxious or worried or conflicted or in some kind of a tizzy about something. And, and since Paul admonishes us not to be anxious, I think we have to conclude that our anxieties come from our fallen nature. That's where they come from. It's from our flesh, which means it's got a sinful origin to it. We are so readily made anxious that we have a hard time telling other people not to be anxious. Because I get anxious, so how can I tell other people not to be anxious? I mean, we sympathize because we've been there, right? I get it, I get why you're anxious. But Paul is holding this great truth out to us. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. When Daniel learned that a law was passed which would likely lead to a horrible end of his life on this earth, did he seem anxious? Now, it doesn't say one way or the other. I, I don't think he, he doesn't seem anxious to me. I don't think he was anxious. If he was anxious, he knew exactly what to do about it. And that is our everything. What he did about it, that's the everything. Verse 6. But, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We skip through these verses so easily and we just say, oh yeah, I'm supposed to pray. Prayer is the key to anxiety. Not a toss-up prayer, you know. Oh Lord, help me with this anxiety and now let me be anxious. Paul, Paul isn't talking like that. Just the, the, And you know when people throw up a prayer to God and it doesn't take away all their anxiety right away, you know what they say? I tried praying, I tried that. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the toss-up quick prayer to just uh, have, ask the deity to help you get over some kind of thing you're, you're going through right now. He's going deeper. He's saying there's no basis for anxiety in a Christian life, which is really challenging because we all get anxious. The word nothing refers to what we should be anxious about. Nothing. There's no reason to be anxious. So let's talk about the word everything as it relates to prayer. Everything is all-encompassing, right? Everything is big things and small things. Everything is churchy things and family things. It's work things and home things. It's friend things and stranger things. It's health things, money things, uh, missing things, broken things, lost things. Happy things, sad things, grieving, 
rejoicing, boredom, being loved or scorned by other people, being safe or in danger, free or in bondage. All things, all things in every circumstance. You can't think of a circumstance where it does not apply. In everything, by prayer. So the more we pray, and the more comprehensively we pray about everything, the more easily we will find victory over anxiety and fear. Paul is really talking about worship because prayer is entering into the presence of God. It's focusing on God. It's God-centered. So when we worship God, we come into his presence. We seek him in prayer. So he's being very helpful by going beyond just the word prayer. He's really being really descriptive here. Look at it. He says prayer and what? Supplication. Supplication is bringing our needs and our problems before God. Our problems, our needs, people we care about, their problems, their needs. All these prayer requests that we looked at today were all people concerned about other people. And we take those needs and those problems to God in prayer. We seek Him. We come into His presence. So, this is actually work. It's, uh, prayer is labor. It's not easy. Uh, it's not casual. There are casual prayers, I guess, but that's not what he's talking about, and that's not the kind of prayer that takes anxiety and fear away. Paul told the Colossian church in the book of Colossians that Epaphras, he says, was, quote, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras labored in prayer. There's a really good example of Paul, if you just flip over a little bit to uh, um, the book of Romans. Paul asking in Romans 15.30, he's asking for serious prayer about his upcoming ministry situations, things he would be facing, and he asked the Roman church to pray for him. And this is how he describes it. This is Romans uh, 15.30. He says, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refresh, refreshing rest in your company. So there's several things he's talking about there, but the point of it is this intensity factor. He has very specific areas of ministry he wants prayer for, and he asks them to strive with him. That word strive is really interesting, agonizomai. Do you hear a, an English word in there, agonize? Agonize, that's where we get that word from this word striving. It's a word that was used of wrestlers, you know, the great... Greco-Roman wrestlers that Paul would have seen those guys doing their thing. You're, what, you ever watch a wrestling match? I mean, a real one, not a, not a cartoon one. I mean, uh, you know, like real wrestlers, like Olympic wrestlers. They are straining every nerve, every muscle. It's constant, intense effort, just everything. And sometimes they're all locked up and it looks like nothing's going on. But what they're really doing is tormenting each other and, you know, trying to get that advantage. And they're using all their... That's the word he uses for prayer. That's a little different than... God bless all the missionaries. The Lord take care of my family. Please. I'm off now. Uh, laboring in prayer. So Paul, 
for all of his gifts and his high calling, he's not a superman that doesn't need prayer support, is he? He's begging them to agonize in prayer for him and what he's coming about. So everybody has needs. If Paul has needs, you've got needs. Everyone you know needs prayer. And the more problems they have, the greater you wrestle for them. If we talk about little Emmy Walterscheid waiting for a heart, we've got to wrestle about that. If we know a wayward brother or sister in the Lord, we've got to wrestle for that person that God would work in their life. Paul isn't talking about a formula. Prayer is just a form of love in action. In fact, it's essential. It's an essential aspect of love because in everything, he says, that's what needs to be there. Warren Wearsby, the preacher, says, supplication is not a matter of carnal energy, but of spiritual intensity. So it's not technique. It's not, you know, Jesus said, don't multiply your words like just routine rote stuff like so many religious people do. It's not that. It's, it's just the passion, the compassion uh, expression of love on our knees. That's what he's talking about. The, it's, the, it's, the, it's spiritual intensity. It's not, oh, how, how many, if I spend three hours instead of one hour in prayer, then it's going to be super, but no, that's not the point. That's really not the point. It's the intensity of your heart in standing with others in prayer, laboring in prayer for them. It can be 10 minutes as opposed to three hours of spinning a wheel or turning a, a prayer shroud or something like that or doing some kind of activity. And don't miss what Paul says that goes along with supplication. It is supplication with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a recognition of the Lord's goodness and mercy in your situation. God is good and he's merciful and he's not against you. He's really not. There are no cold winds of fate blowing your life this way and that. That's how people see the world sometimes. That's not what's going on. God is sovereignly in control of everything. What did Jesus say? He knows when the sparrow falls to the ground, right? All is in his hands, and he is good. Those are fundamental realities of the world. A Christian has to rest in that. A Christian has to rest in God's character as he reveals it in Scripture. And that's exactly what Jesus meant when he said about prayer in Matthew chapter 7, verse 8. He said, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? God is good. So thanksgiving, even in trials, is appropriate and right. It's always appropriate to be thankful because God never lets us down. Oh, we might think he's let us down because it didn't come out exactly the way we wanted it to or circumstances aren't working out the way we planned for them to, but God never ceases to be just merciful and good to his children, never ceases. It's so interesting that when Daniel found out that he might lose his life for faithfulness to God, he just went and 
prayed like he did every day. He went into prayer. Daniel 6.10 not only says he prayed, but these words will sound really familiar, with his, with his enemies at his heels and his life in danger, it says, he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks to God, as he had been doing previously. He did it every day, and facing probable death did not change what he did at all. He prayed, giving thanks. That's exactly what Paul says to do. That's what I mean. Godliness is the same everywhere. In all times, all cultures, all places, it's the same. That's what he did. He gave thanks. He prayed with thanksgiving. And that's the secret of his courage and his lack of anxiety. He knew and believed in his heart that God is sovereign and that God is good. And if God is those two things, we're okay. We don't have to be anxious. Daniel knew and he believed in his heart that God is sovereign and God is good. Now the next verse in Daniel 6 um, says that when Daniel's enemies came to check him out, this is Daniel 6, 11, they, they came to see if he violated the law. They were gonna look to see if he was out there, up there in his window praying and violating the law that they just made. It says they found him, quote, making petition and supplication before his God. So what's he doing? Everything Paul says, making petition, supplication, praying for needs, his needs, other people's needs. I, we know he prayed for Jerusalem all the time and his homeland, his people. So he's making supplication. We know that he prayed with thanksgiving. The text, everything Paul says to do, Daniel was doing, everything, every detail. So Paul and Daniel are on exactly the same page about all of this. And that, that is the path to godliness. Prayer with thanksgiving in everything and making our petitions known to God. So from this standpoint of a thankful heart, when verse six in Philippians four here, let your requests be made known to God. So prayer takes you into his presence. You can bring your petitions before him. Just as Daniel did, God wants to hear from you. God is not reluctant to hear from you. He's eager to hear from you. He is a loving father. He's a perfect father. You might be a usually okay father, but he's a perfect father. You might get tired of being asked. He's not tired. His compassion is infinite. And Jesus teaches us to see God that way as our Father. That's the heart of God. So yes, He's sovereign. Now here's, here's how a theologian, theological mind thinks. God is working out a grand eternal plan. That's true. And sometimes because we believe that that's true, he's working out a grand eternal plan where we fit doesn't matter very much to him. That's not true. Did you know that God can have a grand eternal plan and care about you today at the same time? He can do that. In fact, his plans for you can be part of his grand eternal plan that's gonna work out exactly right. So latch on to that. Don't let that, don't let the idea of God planning everything from eternity past take away from Jesus telling you that God loves you and he's caring for you. He loves his children. He's a loving father. William Hendrickson said, uh, one enters into the very presence of God realizing that nothing is too great for his power to accomplish nor too small for his love to be concerned about. It's 
It's true. So in God's sovereignty and his grand plan, he's caring for you in the midst of that. So come to him in the assurance of his love and make your request known. Now it's also true that God does not exist for us, that we exist for him. And yet, he is our loving Father. So all of these truths have to be held together in your heart and in your mind. Jesus teaches us to see God that way. That is the heart of God towards us. He loves us as his beloved children. He is working out this grand plan, but you are not a pawn in that plan. You are his beloved child in that plan. And that's how he views you. You have to understand that. Never let those thoughts slip into some kind of fatalism. I'm the... I'm wired to be fatalistic. That's, that would be my temptation. to be. That's going to happen anyway. It's all part of God's plan. But you know what? I've got to remember that God loves me in that whole plan. He's got a plan for me. And even if things aren't working out like I think they should be working out, I can represent him in the circumstances I'm in. And that's what Daniel was doing. And that's where Paul was. Both Daniel and Paul had something in common. They were both likely facing death or it was a very real chance that they were Paul was chained to a Roman soldier when he wrote this letter waiting for the word from the emperor can he goes free or he goes to the chopping block and he didn't know which way it was going to go he talks about that in chapter one of Philippians and yet they're not anxious God has a plan for them if, if our plan is to die for him then we represent him there without anxiety if his plan is that we be healthy, wealthy, and wise, then we'd better live for him there and use all of those gifts for other people and for his kingdom and all good things. There's a rather wonderful result from all of this that we're talking about. Many, many Christians have experienced this in circumstances where everything is turned over and everything seems completely overwhelming. The result of this God-focused prayer is peace, a supernatural peace. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It surpasses comprehension. Why does it have to surpass comprehension? Because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the way people think things are supposed to go. Anxiety is normal. Fear and feeling lost are, are common when everything goes bonkers. Remember, Paul is right where Daniel was, waiting for a word from the emperor. Freedom or death. That is anxiety time for most people. But he's at peace. Indeed, as we have seen, he actually rejoices. He rejoices all through this letter. Our problem usually comes from self-focus. When we are the center of everything, we interpret everything as it relates to us. Can you relate? Our well-being, our safety, our security. And when those things are threatened, it's natural to become anxious. But if our primary focus is on God and God's will and God's kingdom program and what he's doing in the world, and if we believe that he loves us and has our backs, he has our best interests at heart, then we can rest in that. We can rest in him. It's natural to put ourselves first. I mean, the world is dangerous. The world is sinful. It's natural to be concerned about that. 
man has fallen and wicked and the earth itself is cursed, it's dangerous, and we naturally look out for ourselves and for our own. But in reality, being anxious is, the par- is a part of the fall. It's part of our fallen condition. It's one aspect of that. This self-focus is a part of our fallenness. If we were sinless and pure and unfallen creatures, if we were made the way God made us to be, we would always be God-focused and have a perfect trust in Him and His promises and whatever was going on around us wouldn't faze us at all. He He would be our peace naturally. It would be natural. It's not natural because we live in a fallen world and we're fallen creatures. So we must move ourselves to the place of peace. And Paul is telling us how to do that. As we grow in faith and apply our hearts regularly to the great truths that we know from God's word, that God is in control, that he is our father, that he has our best interest at heart, we start moving to a place of peace. As we grow in faith and apply our hearts regularly to these things, we experience peace. We can actually experience peace here on earth, now, today, as a gift. Paul says it's a supernatural work. It's a supernatural work of God as we abide with him through prayer. Sometimes it's quite surprising just how such peace actually falls on you at moments. I'm sure you've experienced that if you walk with the Lord. It just falls on you and you go, wow, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay. I really feel peace. It's a very real thing. Well, the foundation of that kind of peace, well, let's talk about that first, the foundation of it and then the experience of it. So the foundation of it is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, the blood of Christ, right? Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Colossians 1.20 says, Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. So that's the legal foundation, our standing before God, we are at peace. He's not mad at us. He's not going to judge our sin. Our sin has been paid. That's the foundation for experiencing peace. If you and I were enemies and we buried the hatchet and became friends, we would feel it. We would feel peace. It would change our disposition. It would change our emotional state. There's a settled feeling of joy, maybe even trust with former enemies when we make peace with them. I mean real peace. We actually become friends. With God, it's an absolute sure thing because God isn't wishy-washy and he might not turn again. He's settled in where he is. We're his children. He loves us. He's going to look out for us. He's perfect. So peace with him is real and lasting. So the fact of peace that Jesus accomplished leads to the subjective feeling of peace in our hearts. When Jesus left this world, do you remember what he told the disciples? Peace I leave with you. Remember that? It was the last night at the Lord's Supper. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Exactly what Paul's talking about. And he's speaking about our hearts there. Don't let it be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. The fact of peace is where our hearts need to rest. And as we let the reality of that peace become part of who we are, it starts doing the work of a sentinel, a guard. 
peace is a guard. It watches over us. The peace of God is actively protecting you. God's peace keeps our minds and our hearts protected from what? From going to places where they should not go. That's what God's peace is designed to do, to keep your heart and your mind protected from going places where your heart and your mind should not go. Oh, I'm doomed. The world is fatalistic. It doesn't care anything about me. That's, the heart, that's a thought that a Christian should never have. It protects us. Satan wants us to go to a place of fear and despair. That's where he wants us. God's peace keeps our minds and our hearts from ever going there. Knowing God is with you, that he is your loving father, that he is in control, stands guard against all the uncertainty and that overwhelming feeling we all can get that life is out of control and and we're just cast on the whims of chance. That's not true. The truth and the, the, the peace that God has accomplished between us and himself through Christ takes all that away. He says it's not so. The peace of God says chance is not ruling your life. God is ruling your life. And we know because we know Christ that life is purposeful, a good purpose. God has a purpose for us even in very troubled circumstances. What did Job say? You know, Job did a lot of complaining, but in the midst of it all, he said something rather profound. Job 13, 15, he said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. God, you can kill me now, and I'm still gonna hope in you. Whatever you're doing to me, I don't get it, but I hope in you. He knew where to put his hope and his trust. We are here for a reason. We as Christians know better than Job knew We are here to represent our Savior and King in a messy world. That's our purpose. And trusting Him in the mess as it touches our lives is of incredible value to our purpose because people need to see that as it's beneficial to our own growth, but it also represents who Christ is when we are not living with intense anxiety and despair, when we can be the calm because we are resting in God in the storms of life. God desires our growth in faith and in spiritual maturity and he will use this messy world to bring that about. So you've got to be ready for that. This is not our home. This world is not our home. A much better place is coming so don't fret if God in his sovereign love for you weans you from this world a little bit. Shows you how unimportant it really is. Be anxious for, thank you, nothing. (laughs) In everything, see the hand of God in your life and pray and pray. He has you just where he wants you every day to walk with him where you are. Let's pray. Our great God, we ask you in prayer to teach us the way of peace, which means being actively devoted to you, passionately devoted to you, praying with thanksgiving, rejoicing in you, resting 
in your love and sovereign goodness. Help us to do that. Help us to do that faithfully. And remind us, guard our hearts by your Holy Spirit through the peace that he gives when we look and agonize in prayer before you. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.